Uh, man, it's good to be here with you guys this morning as it is every Sunday. Um, as they're saying, th- there are difficulties about um, being a pastor, but man, I absolutely love pastoring you guys. Like I'm consistently uh, thinking about how blessed I am just getting to shepherd like this body of people. Um, you guys love Jesus really well. Uh, you love me really well. Uh, you, you love this campus really well. So uh, I'm very thankful to not just be your pastor, but just to even like be a part of this church. Like I legitimately am. I love being a family together with you guys that are pursuing Jesus. Um, so I want to ask, is there anyone here that is a slackliner? Raise your hand if you're a slackliner. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that kind of proves my point. I, I, I think that slacklining is really difficult. If, raise your hand if you don't even know what a slackline is. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, if you don't know what Slackline is, I have a picture of one, hopefully. We've been having some technical uh, issues this morning, but uh, it's a line that you, you'll see it, people uh, set it up sometimes on like Hammock Village or something. Oh, uh, yeah, there you go. One of those lines, you just kind of like walking on it, it has a little bit of slack to it, you sink down. It, it looks kind of easy when you see someone do it that, that knows what they're doing, but then if you get up there and try to do it, it's really, really hard. Like, I consider myself like a decently athletic person, so I, and I just am usually confident that I can do something, um, but I, I cannot walk across one of those slack lines. The only time I've ever made it across is when someone was holding my hand, and uh, so, man, I, I've been like really impressed by people that can get up there and, and walk across a slack line, and, and uh, that was kind of how I was for a while until one day I was walking on campus uh, over by CCM, and I met this guy named Ben. And uh, Ben could not only walk on a slack line, but he could do things that you would never imagine a person could do on a slack line. And rather than me describe it, I actually have a video I'm going to show you of some of the things that he does on a slack line. He was a UC student. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I don't know anyone else that can freeze like that. Um, <laughs> no. So, so Ben, he, he's graduated now, but he, he used to go to UC, and uh, I'd never seen anyone do anything that he could do. If you would have seen the video, you'd have seen he can flip and spin and land and, and you know, just do basically anything that you can think of on a slack line. And uh, after I saw that, I thought, man, like, it kind of made it look not that impressive anymore to just be able to walk across it. And I share that with you because every now and then, uh, you'll come across something that's so much greater than the previous version of it that it, it's, it's not even so much that that old thing is not impressive anymore, but this new one is so great that it kind of overshadows any sort of awe or wonder uh, that you had in, in the previous one. And sometimes we'll come across things like that in the Bible. And today, as we continue our study uh, through 2 Corinthians, we're going to see uh, this idea of two different covenants. And we're going to see that there, there was an old covenant that was actually really glorious and impressive, kind of like that guy that is able to walk across the slack line. But then we're going to see that there's something that was even greater that came, this new covenant, that, that the glory of it outshines that old one so much. It's like the guy that's doing flips and tricks and everything else on the slack line so much so that it almost makes that old one not even look that impressive anymore. 
Now, uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been uh, studying the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we've called this series uh, Picture of a Faithful Christian Servant. And the reason is because uh, Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth, and he's having some relational problems with them, primarily because there are people that uh, had come in, there were false teachers that were spreading lies about who Paul was, and he had to end up defending a lot of his authority as an apostle. And... uh, We've seen, as he's defending himself, these different characteristics that should be present in the life of a faithful Christian servant. And so we've seen that a faithful Christian servant is someone who's comforted by God and that, it, that seeks to comfort others. We've seen that a faithful Christian servant is sincere and trustworthy. We've seen that a faithful Christian servant seeks the good of others. Uh, John talked two weeks ago about how a faithful Christian servant is someone that spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere they go. And today we're going to see that a faithful Christian servant is a member of the new covenant. Now, some of you, I don't know if you're from church background or whatever, you may not even know what that word covenant means. Don't worry, you will by the end of this sermon. Um, But before I dive into the main text for today, I just want to pray together. God, uh, we love you a lot, and we thank you uh, that you are really, really good and really awesome. God, I actually thank you that you're greater than any of us comprehend. And I pray this morning that you would help us to just grow in our awe of you, um, help us to grow in our wonder of you, help us to grow in our thankfulness, help us to grow in our understanding, God, of uh, who you've made us and, and what kind of a relationship you've invited us into with you. So God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it that it would cut into our hearts, Holy Spirit. We pray that uh, you would be here and that you would help us to uh, understand and apply everything that we hear this morning. So we love you, Lord. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll start reading at verse 4. Uh, but before we get into that, just I want to give you a little bit of context. I also want to let you know, if you have a Bible with you, this is the kind of day that you're going to want it. One, because we're having a lot of slides issues. And two, uh, because I'm actually going to have to be directing you to the text a lot. Uh, the sermon today might at times feel a little bit more like you're in a seminary class than it will like you're at uh, hearing a sermon. Um, Because I'm going to be referring back to the text a lot to really try and help you see uh, how Paul is comparing these two different uh, covenants with one another. Uh, But to give you a little bit of context before we get into uh, our main text for today, um, I told you that Paul was combating some of these uh, lies that these false teachers were were spreading against him. And sometimes these teachers would come and they would uh, come with these letters of recommendation. Okay? Kind of like, if you ever read a, a book that has a bunch of people on the front uh, or like the back cover or whatever that says like, this is the greatest book you'll read this year or whatever, something like that. There's like essentially letters of recommendation saying this is why you should read this book. Um, well, that's what these guys, sometimes you'd have these itinerant preachers that come around to different places and they'd carry these letters with them where someone's endorsed them saying, this is why you should listen to this person. And so some of these guys that were uh, teaching stuff that was contrary to Paul, had these kind of letters. Now, Paul didn't come to the Corinthians with any of these kind of things. But what he told them right before this passage we're getting into, he's like, you guys yourselves are my letter of recommendation. Like, I'm the one that came and preached the gospel to you, and the Holy Spirit moved, and you were saved. And, and yeah, I may not have a letter that's, that's written on a piece of paper or on a stone, but like, you guys are my letter. God has, God has written the fruitfulness of my ministry on your very hearts. And with that, it kind of springboards him 
into this idea of uh, speaking about the difference between the letter and the spirit, all right? And consequently, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. So with that being said, we're going to go to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians and start reading at verse 4. We're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. When he starts talking about confidence, it's because that that confidence he says to her, we don't even need this, this letter of recommendation, all right? Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Okay, we're going to stop there. Uh, There's a lot of text we read. There's a lot we're going to try and get through. I'm not going to be able to touch on every single detail. Uh, But the first thing I want to discuss from this passage is this idea of these two different covenants that are being compared. And that's really where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. In the passage, Paul said that he was made a minister of the new covenant, okay, in verse 6, where he said he's made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, understanding this difference between the old and new covenants is actually something that I believe is going to be very important for your understanding as in, of the Bible as a whole, okay? This, this is a lot of theology or doctrine we're going to get into, but it has a lot of practical implication, Okay, so first off, we should start with saying, what is a covenant? All right, Um, a covenant is simply a binding contract between two parties, 
and both of them have obligations to each other that are specified in the covenant. All right, uh, there's, there's two different parties. There's a, a differential in power most of the time. So usually you'd have a suzerain, which is kind of the, the powerful lord. Uh, they're generally uh, providing protection or blessing of some kind to the weaker party, which is the vassal. And that vassal would provide loyalty. And there would be stipulations in the covenant that show exactly what that loyalty is. How is it that this vassal shows loyalty to the suzerain? Now, there are several different covenants that God makes throughout the Bible, um, so we should identify the one that Paul is specifically talking about in this passage. Um, the, he, he doesn't explicitly say old covenant in this, but you'll see that he's alluding to it with several different terms, like in verse 6 where he calls it the letter, or in verse 7 when he speaks of something that's engraved in letters on stone. So when we see this, we know that the covenant that he's talking about is the one that God made with Israel when he took them out of slavery in Egypt, and he made a covenant with them to be their God, and they would be his people, a people that are set apart. Now, uh, there's plenty of statements about this uh, that we can find in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read a sample one for you from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. This is God speaking to Israel. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here we have this covenant that God is making with Israel, saying, I brought you out of slavery. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be the, uh, the, the God that keeps you as my treasured possession. Uh, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There's a special kind of relationship that Israel is going to get to have with God. And what they're supposed to do is what? Keep my covenant. And so what he would do then is lay out what we know as the law. And the law is the stipulations of that covenant. And God actually wrote some of those things even on stone himself. We see Exodus 31, 18. It says, when the Lord had finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. All right, so here's this covenant. It's a special relationship that God has entered into with Israel, and it has stipulations that Israel is supposed to follow. God is going to be their God. He's going to provide them with blessing and protection, make them a holy nation, and they are supposed to be his people that know his law and keep it. Now, this is a really big deal. You think about this. Like, the fact that God would bring them out of slavery, say, I want to make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. I want to have a, a special relationship with you. That is, is a pretty incredible offer. That's a very, very glorious thing in and of itself, that God would do something like this. Um, they, they were blessed that they would get to have this kind of interaction with God, and they were blessed, actually, even in the fact that they were given the law and they had the opportunity to keep it. You know, sometimes I think that we, when we think of the law, or any law for that matter, we think of it as kind of being like a drag, like, oh, it's, you know, limiting my freedom, or it's making life more boring, or something like that. But in reality, like, the reason that laws are given, even in our society, is, is really for good. Like, we have laws for a reason, because they try to help make life better, and the whole society flourishes. And this is actually what God was doing even with Israel as he gave them this law. It, it, was, it was a blessing, not just in that they would get to be connected with God, but the law itself and how it taught them how to live was for their good. Look at this example. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. It says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws, this is Moses speaking, as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. 
Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near, to, uh, near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws I am setting before you today? So you see this idea that, man, God blesses them with the law. He gives them this wise uh, way of living. And that even they're like, they're blessed by that. And they get to bless other nations too as they see this special kind of relationship that God has with them. And so when he gives them this marvelous law, it actually ends up coming with a lot of glory. Okay, first off, he brought them out of Egypt with the 10 plagues. If you've, Some of you may have seen the Moses movie or uh, Prince of Egypt or something like that, right? Uh, you know, God does these fantastic things to bring them out of slavery, he parts the Red Sea, brings them into the desert. And then even there, when he calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai, there's this fantastic scene where he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And Moses, there, there's this thick cloud that covers the mountain, and there's thunder, there's lightning, there's smoke, there's the sound of a trumpet. It comes in this great glory. And then when God would speak to Moses and give him this law, not only did he have all this, this big kind of scary stuff going on to where people couldn't even approach the mountain, but when he'd speak to Moses, Moses' face would literally shine. And that is what Paul was alluding to a little bit in this passage. I'm going to read from Exodus 34, 29 to 34 for you. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Okay, so I want to read that because in that Second Corinthians passage, we see that Paul is alluding to this idea, right, of this thing that was written on stone or the fact that it came with glory or that Moses had to put a veil over his face to make it radiant. So I'm trying to help you understand the things Paul is alluding to in this passage. And what he's showing is, man, that's actually a pretty glorious covenant, right? Like, that's, that's pretty glorious that God would do this that he give his law, that he give it in such a fantastic man manner with the thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the trumpet, and that even when he would speak to Moses, it was literally making Moses' face shine. This is a great, glorious, and good covenant that God made with his people. And God was perfectly capable of holding up his end, and he did it fantastically. Uh, there, there was a snag, though. And the problem wasn't with the covenant God made, but it was with the people with whom he made it. And, and what we would see is that even though the law was good and the covenant was good, they were unable to keep their end of the bargain. And as a fact, matter of fact, God knew that this was going to happen really pretty much from the beginning. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, it's, it's getting close to the time that Israel is going to go in and take this land that God promised he was going to give them. God tells Moses this, Deuteronomy 31, 16. The Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people 
will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. So as good and as glorious and as awesome as this covenant is, we have a serious problem, which is that the people are not going to hold up their end of the bargain. They're going to break it. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that this is exactly what happened. They were very unfaithful to God. They broke the covenant by continually failing to keep the law. And consequently, they faced punishment and separation from God. And this was shown even in the fact that he exiled them off into different lands. And so the people had a great covenant and a great law to uphold, but they broke it and were unable to fulfill their part. You see, there's another major issue that we have too. It's not just that the people didn't keep the covenant, but it's also that there wasn't really a provision that could actually take away their sins when they would break it either. Now, if you read the Old Covenant, you'll actually see there's quite a bit of sacrifice that goes on in it. There's a lot of sacrifices that are there uh, that, that, that speak about forgiving sin. But uh, the four picture that we have now shows us that those things never really could actually take away sin, but rather they were things that were pointing forward to something that eventually would be able to. Uh, the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit of insight on this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we see this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, yes, this covenant is good and glorious, and it, it even has this mechanism in it that's showing you the sacrifice uh, of animals, this, this idea of paying blood for sin. But ultimately, we're seeing that blood of bulls and goats can't actually truly take away sins. And that's even why these sacrifices have to be done continually over and over and over again. Because they're actually just a shadow that was pointing forward to something else that would come. And so the law, good as it was, didn't save, but actually what it did is it ended up bringing condemnation. Not because it was bad, but because it showed what was good. And consequently, it showed how far off the people were from being good. And this is why Paul uses some of this language to describe it in our main passage here in 2 Corinthians 3. In verse 7, for example, he says, The ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone. He literally calls it the ministry that brought death. Verse 9, he says, the ministry that brought condemnation. Now, he's not denying that the old covenant is good and glorious. But what he's showing us, this is the effect that actually was, that was happening there. And that's because it showed us this perfect standard. I don't know, do any of you guys ever like to like do a little bit of construction, build things or whatever? Maybe some. Okay, yeah, some of you guys. Okay, uh, maybe you've used a level before. A level, if you don't know what that is, it's a uh, bar. It can be of varying lengths, uh, anywhere from about, I don't know, uh, six inches all the way up to four feet or so. And uh, it has this little bubble in it. And this, this bubble will, if you want to get it right to the middle of a bar, and it will show you if what you're measuring is actually level or if it's tilted. <laughs> and when you start to use a level consistently, uh, you start to see how bad you are at being able to tell what's actually level. <laughs> Okay, especially those of you guys that live in these old Clifton houses that are 100 plus years old, there's probably about nothing in your house that's, that's level or plumb. Okay, my house was built in 1907. There's, there's lots of problems with there. But like, 
you, the, the, when you, it, it kind of looks level to you, or it might look plumb. That's just the version of being straight up and down. Uh, but then once you put that level up against you, see, oh, man, it's, it's actually not. And I think this is how we can be a lot of the time when we think about righteousness. When we don't have a standard that we actually measure ourselves again, we look at it like, oh, yeah, that's, that's good, that's level, I'm doing a great job. But when God's law comes, and it's this level that, that, that goes against us, we see how far off we actually are. And, and that, that's something that the law is doing. It's, it's exposing our crookedness the same way that a level exposes the crookedness of a building. Now, the uh, issue is all it does is expose that, right? It doesn't actually fix it. It just tells you it's a problem, but there's something else that has to be done to be able to fix that problem. So the Old Covenant's great in that it shows us what's right, but it's lacking and that we can't keep it perfectly and it doesn't have the power to save. So in this, it points to the need for something else. And this is why Paul describes the Old Covenant with some interesting language here. He actually calls it transitory. Two different times in our main passage there, right? Look at verse 7. Uh, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Look at verse 11. He says, and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So helping us realize, man, the, the, uh, the law was great. But it was transitory. It, it's something that's pointing forward to the need for this greater covenant that would come. So what is this new covenant? It's not something that was just made up by Christians. It's not something that Jesus could just kind of brought up out of the blue. Matter of fact, if we look in the old covenant itself, we will see that it's prophesied. Okay, look at this. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a huge passage. Very, very, very important Old Testament passage for you to know. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay, you see what's going on here? There, there's no doubt that God's people were unfaithful to him, right? They, they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them. Uh, th th there was a, a problem and because God loved them, he didn't just want to give up on them, right? Like they broke it. They, they, had forfeited and all, they had forfeited their rights to the blessing of the covenant because they didn't hold up their end. But rather than God just choosing to, to cast them aside, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make one that's even better. Now, if you were to give something that was really great and really valuable to a person, and they just like totally abused it, would you be likely to give that person something valuable again? Probably not, right? Like, like if I loaned my car to you and then you went out and like went hill hopping with it and drove it into a ditch or something, do you think I'm going to loan like a better car to you later? 
Me? Probably not. But, but God, this is what shows you how rich in mercy he is, right? That's one of the ways he's described. That even though he gave this beautiful old covenant that he w- was actually abused and, and not followed, we see that he says, a day's coming, I'm going to make a new one that's even better. And man, this is, this is how God is, is, is so much greater and more amazing than we are. Right? Look, at the, look at the way that this new covenant is described and how it's so much greater even than the old one, which was already good that he made with them. In this covenant, we see that the law is not written on stone like the old one, but it's actually written on hearts. It's written on hearts. He says in verse 33 there, Jeremiah, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Interesting, right? Uh, if you're thinking back to 2 Corinthians, what did I tell you? We didn't read the, the text, but right before this, he talks about even the, the Corinthians. They were people that were transformed, and what? They were a letter that w- there was written on their hearts. They had been people that were transformed. They were people that had come to know the Lord. They, they were people that, that were starting to be made more into the image of God. They were new creations, which he's going to talk about in a passage we get to later. You know, we, we talk a lot about how God cares about the heart. And the reality is that God actually, not only does he write his law in our hearts, but in doing so, he gives us new hearts. This is how Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, prophesies of this, th- something regarding this new covenant that's coming. He says this, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that so much better than a law that's written on a piece of stone? Because even as the law is written on the piece of stone, you might know it, but it doesn't mean that you have the power to keep it. So here, in this better covenant, not only does God write the law, but he writes it on our hearts. He gives us new hearts, and he puts his spirit within us, not only telling us what's right, but giving us the power to actually carry it out. Right, like, like, yeah, that's, that's a greater covenant. That's so much better than just what, what the old one on the stone was able to do. And, and it, it doesn't end there, right? And not only does he give us a new heart and put a spirit within us, write the law in our hearts, but look at what he says in verse uh, 34. He says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In this new covenant, everyone that is a part of the covenant knows the Lord. All right, now think about this. It, how is it that a person would enter into the old covenant? They, the, the covenant was made with ethnic Israel, right? So, so to be brought into this covenant, what you had to do was be born, okay? You're born in, and then what happens? People have to teach you how to actually know the Lord and try to follow his law. Well, how do you enter the new covenant? It's not through your birth, but your rebirth, Right? This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So as we are born again through our faith in Christ, we become people that enter into this new covenant with God. And with this, that means that every single person that is a part of this covenant knows the Lord. It's actually knowing the Lord that allows you to be the one that enters into this in the first place. So please, Never tell me that you were born a Christian. I get frustrated when I hear people tell it. If I, I ask, you know, how did you become a Christian? Oh, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. No, you were not. Do not ever tell me that. You were not born a Christian. If you're a Christian, you were born again at some point. 
okay? Because God has to do a work in your heart to, to, to remove that heart of stone and give you this heart of flesh where he's going to put his spirit in you and write his law on your heart. He's going to make you a new creation. This is something that happens when you come to faith in Jesus. We enter into the new covenant through our rebirth. And in this covenant, there is forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 34. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You know, this is something that's, that's really beautiful, right? Because Hebrews told us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But there is blood that can take away sins. And that blood is the blood of Jesus. As a matter of fact, look at the language Jesus uses when he, uh, when he talks about blood. This is awesome. Last Supper, he's having his, his last supper with his disciples shortly before he'd be betrayed and crucified. He says this, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You understand what his disciples are, are, are hearing here. Remember when Jeremiah said there was going to be a new covenant that would come and that, that God would remember our sins no more? Well, Jesus is telling you that this is how that's going to happen. This is my blood of the covenant. My blood, that's what's bringing in this new covenant. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And because of this, it's going to be the case that that promise of Jeremiah will come true, that he remembers your sins no more. And so you can see that even though the old covenant is great, this new one is so much greater. And this is why Paul describes it as such. In our main passage there in 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 8. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Verse 9, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Verse 11, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? This new covenant isn't going anywhere, guys, because it doesn't lack anything. The, the same way that the, the Old Testament, what does it have, that, even that sacrificial part of it, what did, we, what did the author of Hebrews tell us? That it uh, was actually giving us an annual reminder of the way that our sins were still there. It's pointing forward to this need for something else. The, the new covenant, it, it's finished, right? That's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. His blood's poured out. There, there's nothing lacking anymore. It's not going anywhere. And that's why this one isn't transitory. This is the one that lasts. It not only teaches us what is right, but empowers us to do what is right. As God puts his very spirit within us. And not only shows us our sin, but also allows us to be forgiven of sin by the shed blood of Christ. And, you know, so this is an amazing covenant. And the news actually even continues to get a little bit better, right? Because what did Jeremiah say? He said that he's going to make a, this covenant with Israel, okay? Well, most of us here are not ethnically a part of Israel. I don't know what everyone's ethnicity is here, but most of us probably aren't. And you know what? Neither were most of the people that Paul was writing this letter to. He was writing this letter to a city called Corinth, full of a bunch of Greek people, primarily from non-Israelite backgrounds. And what we see, <laughs> part of the beauty of the new covenant is that, yes, it was made with Israel, but the, the, all, it, 
all of these other people, what we call Gentiles, everyone that's not in Israel, has been offered this opportunity to be grafted in to the people of God. And so then this new covenant extension is not just for them, but it actually goes out to the whole world. And God knew he was going to do this from the very beginning. Because even when he uh, told Abraham he was going to bless him, he said that he would bless him to be a blessing. We actually talked about that a lot last week if you were here. So this new covenant promise, this new covenant reality that we live in now is good news for you and for me. So as we have this new covenant, I told you that I was going to take you through all this theology and, and, and show you how the Bible was showing us what the old covenant was and, and what the new covenant is and, and how it all works together. And, and frankly, uh, I get excited about doing that. It makes me want to worship. But I told you there's a lot of practical implication here, okay? And I'm going to give you just a, a three different C's of a practical implication of what, it, what the new covenant life looks like now for a Christian. Um, and the first is that the new covenant brings clarity into the life of a Christian, right? Uh, we actually see that we, apart from Christ, live life with a lot of confusion and, and a, a lack of clarity in so many ways. And this passage here in, in 2 Corinthians actually even shows us how we have an active enemy trying to obscure our view, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That, uh, apart from Christ, we really don't have a very good understanding of who God is. Our view of him, we're blind. It's obscured. But in his grace and mercy that he shows us in the new covenant, he brings clarity to us. And helps us to see him in a way that we never could have seen him before. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You see, when you become a, a new covenant Christian, you, you're born again. God's spirit does something in you that, that brings your, the eyes of your heart to be able to see who he actually is. And I, I don't know what everyone's experience is here in this room. I don't think it has to be something that's totally dramatic, but the Spirit absolutely has to do a work in your life to help you see who God is. And, and you know, I, I think back to my own story. I, I think that I really became a Christian so, sometime when I was in middle school. I was reading the Bible, and, and as I would read the Bible, there was something that it was, yeah, it was like the light of Christ sh shone in my heart. I don't even know how else to describe it, but there was something that was just telling me that what I was reading was true. There was an enlightenment that happened. And yeah, I can give you all these other reasons logically and historically and all these kind of things for why I believe in Christianity. But at the end of the day, there was something that happened in my heart where God made his light shine to give me knowledge of his glory, to see that, that Christ is displaying that. And you know, is the new covenant, not only do we get to see who God is more clearly, but now we see the scripture more clearly too. Right? Look at, look at what Paul said back in our main passage, chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. He says, But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He's trying to help us realize, man, there's a lot of people that are reading these same Old Testament scriptures and they don't get it. Like they're just, they're not seeing Jesus. 
And only in Christ is this veil taken away. Um, and, and frankly, we need Jesus to be the one that comes and opens up our minds to see what the Scripture is actually teaching. This is, uh, Jesus had an interaction with a couple guys on the road to Mesa shortly after he was resurrected. They were guys that read the Old Testament Scriptures. But they were missing how they're pointing to Jesus. Look at this in Luke 24, 25 to 27. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus did is he started to lift the veil from them. And and they started to be able to see what the scripture was actually teaching. And man, this, this new clarity that we have in seeing God and in seeing his word is something that should cause us to worship. Like, I, I, I'm so excited every time I see this grand story of God woven throughout the scripture, consistently showing us the same God who's the same God yesterday, today, and forever, showing us his grand plan for how he is bringing about the, the redemption of our world, honestly. The way that we can be forgiven, the way that we can be with him, the way that he's ultimately glorified. So our clear view of Christ should lead us to a clear proclamation of his gospel. And I love how Paul even talks about it. He's like, man, we set the truth forth plainly. You know, we commend ourselves before God in every man's conscience. So the new covenant brings great clarity into the life of Christian because we see God for who he is and we start to understand his word for what it actually means. You know, one of the other things that the new covenant brings in the life of the Christian is conformity. Now, it's not conformity to this world, but conformity to God. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. God made us in his image, right? But sin has broken and obscured that. It hasn't totally demolished it. We, we still bear his image, even if you're apart from him. But of course, as you sin, you are a lot less like God, because God doesn't sin. Well, one of the things that, that happens now with the new covenant, remember, as God has given us new hearts and written his law on our hearts and put his spirit within us, what happens? We become people that are more conformed into his image, Right? Like, this is why uh, Paul talks about this idea of the fruit producing spirit in us. That we become, pe- uh, the, the spirit producing fruit in us, sorry. We become people that are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. These are things that start to increase in our lives as new covenant people, not because of even the things that we're doing, but because the spirit is producing us, that in us. Like, as people of the new covenant, God has chosen to come and dwell within you. And to, to make you more, uh, to, 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 as it says there, transform you more into his image with ever-increasing glory. How cool is that? It's awesome. And, you know, he, he does, of course, call us to cooperate with this process. Yes, he's, he, he wants to work in us, but he does call us to an obedience to cooperate with him in that. And that's even why Paul talks about how he's renounced secret and shameful ways. He doesn't, he, he doesn't use deception. He doesn't distort the word of God. He's going to do everything in his power to, to work with God in the way that he's conforming him more and more into his image. And finally, as new covenant people, 
we have confidence. We're confident before God, right? Look at the confidence that Paul has. He says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. You see, in the new covenant, we are made righteous, right? And that is something that allows us literally to have confidence before God. Now, that's kind of crazy, right? Because it's hard to have confidence before someone that's like absolutely excellent, okay? So uh, any of you guys musicians in here? Okay, yeah, so a lot of people in here can, can play an instrument, right? Um, and, and if I ask you to play guitar, I'm sure you'd probably be comfortable playing it in front of me. But if there was, like, a professional guitarist that was here, all of a sudden you'd probably be a lot more self-conscious about your ability to play because you know that that person is going to pick up every single mistake that you make. They have an ear that's much more trained than mine is. They understand how to do it better than you do. And, and here's the crazy thing. We are people that get to have a confidence that we stand before God, who's literally perfect. How in the world could we be people that have confidence to stand before God? The only way that that could happen is if God himself has given us his righteousness, right? Like, if I say I'm a pretty righteous person, a lot of people would say I'm a nice guy, do good things, whatever. You put me before God, my goodness, I'm self-conscious, it's like Isaiah, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But here's the beauty of the gospel, of the new covenant, that God has literally given me a new heart, that he's made me a new creation. And so now as I stand before him, I literally have my confidence in Christ and the righteousness that he had, which is perfect. I'm no longer standing before God with my imperfect righteousness. Think of the kind of confidence that it gives us. That's the gospel, which is that you're not going to be judged based on your own good works. You're going to be judged on the perfect work of Christ. When he died on the cross, he did so so that all of your sins would be washed away and forgiven. He took the punishment for that, and the perfect and righteous life that he lives, he's giving to you. So that then as we are in Christ, which is how we're described consistently in the scripture, we stand before God, and he sees the righteousness of Christ as he looks at us. That gives us confidence before God, right? And that gives us confidence to approach his throne of grace, find mercy when we need it. And also, we're confident before people. In verse 12, he said, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. As new covenant people, we realize that we've been given something so much greater than anything this world has to offer. We already have a promise that's secure, that there's nothing in this world that could possibly take it away from us. So what should that create in us? It should create an incredible confidence and boldness. And this is the kind of confidence and boldness that Paul walked with. You know, uh, in, in his letter to the Romans, he, he wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. And the new covenant shows us that God certainly is for us. We have these very great promises. Why is it that we allow ourselves to continue to live in fear and anxiety all the time? Timid. What, what, what can this world do to us? What can, it can't take away your, your inheritance as a child of God. You know, even if your life is taken, like, like to live as Christ and to die is gain. That we, we get to go and be people that dwell with the Lord. So you see that this new covenant brings us 
confidence before God, and it brings us confidence before people. And with this confidence comes freedom, right? Like there's an incredible freedom to be had as a new covenant person. You realize there's all this stuff in the world that you were worried about and, and so many different things that you wanted to try and control the outcomes of, and all that stuff kind of starts to fade, right? And the view of this surpassing glory and greatness of the new covenant. You know, there's certain lights that we think are bright, but when a really, really bright light shines next to it, it completely drowns out whatever that other light is, right? Like if, if, if uh, this room was completely dark and you had a flashlight, you would see the light of that flashlight. But if we turn on all the lights, you wouldn't see the light of that flashlight anymore. And, you know, it's interesting, even Paul, who is writing this letter, even had a, a physical experience of something like that. When he was on the road to Damascus, it says that it was noon, actually. The, it, was, it was midday when Jesus appeared to him. And when Jesus appeared to him, it was a light that blotted out the sun, even, and blinded him. And so as New Covenant people, man, we, we get to live in the freedom of knowing that we already have something that's so much greater. There's freedom. There's freedom from fear, from guilt, from shame. We get to be people that freely worship the Lord knowing that he has brought us into a greater covenant. And so with that, man, like let's, let's live as people that are free, that worship freely, that worship confidently, that are able to rejoice in the Lord. I hope and pray that God is consistently building this kind of heart and mind in all of us. That we would understand this treasure that we've been given in the new covenant. Brought in as God's people. Given a new heart. His law written upon us. His spirit deposited within us. That we can stand confidently both before him and before the people of this world. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you uh, that you are <clears throat> more glorious than we could possibly even imagine. Lord, the, the old covenant was glorious enough. I mean, it was, it was incredible, God. Um, the way that you choose to show yourself to us, but then the new covenants come, and it's, it's even more glorious. I pray, God, that you'd help us to be people that appreciate that, that uh, meditate on that, that think about the reality of what we've been given. And, and like Paul, I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity. Like just, Lord, if there's anyone in this room even that doesn't have a clear view of who you are, I pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes. I pray that you would make your light shine in their hearts. God, I pray that you would continue to conform us into your image. Make us more and more like you. And Spirit, we know that you're at work doing that. God, give us the boldness and confidence that come as people that uh, know that we've, we've really been bought by your blood, adopted into your family. We love you so much, God. Um, I pray that you would be worshiped, that you would be honored in our time of song here, that you'd be honored in the way we go forth from here and live our lives. I pray this in your son's awesome name.